This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello. <laughs> you were about to clap, weren't you? <laughs> I'm not Nicola. My name's Nick Barley, and I'm the director of the festival, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this event, which is sponsored by Experian. And a special thanks to Experian, because it's the sixth year of their sponsorship, and it's so important to us to have companies like that helping us to bring these great events to Edinburgh. Tonight, we welcome uh, a debut moderator, somebody who hasn't interviewed here at the festival before, and I hope you'll, you'll give her a, a warm round of applause and help her along if she needs any help. Um, but she does carry on in a long tradition, which was uh, initiated by her predecessor, Alex Salmond, of coming to the book festival and uh, appearing as a politician in a different kind of a guise, as somebody who, rather than answering the media's questions, is willing to ask them. And she'll be asking questions tonight about books and about reading and about the way that books reflect the way the world is. And of course, you'll be interviewing the wonderful Val McDermott, one of Scotland's great crime writers. This is an event for you. It's also an event which is being broadcast live on the BBC. So please give a proper Edinburgh welcome to Nicola Sturgeon and Val McDermott. Good evening. Good evening. Thank I'm you. I'm not Nicola either. <laughs> Actually, neither am I. Wait. Thank you all so much uh, for coming along here tonight, but particular thanks to Val McDermott. You know, I'm used to having to answer the questions. Tonight, I get the opportunity to ask the questions, which is actually a very strange experience. The bit I'm looking forward to most is interrupting her after a sentence to say, no, I'm sorry, you're not answering. <laughs> anyway, this is not about me tonight. This is about the awesome Val McDermott. So give her another massive round of applause. <laughs> I... I'm a huge fan of crime fiction in general, but I'm a massive fan of Val in particular. So apologies in advance if I come across as a bit of a fangirl at any point <laughs> tonight. The reason for that is I am. Uh, but I'm going to try and ask questions that you might want to know the answers to, and there'll be an opportunity for you guys later on to ask your own questions of Val. Uh, I've got to remember that, unlike me, many of you will not have read Splinter of the Silence yet. So I'm going to try and avoid any plot spoilers. Uh, as I, I'm one of these people that I would love nothing more than to think I could write the perfect crime novel, but, but I know I probably couldn't. But the, the process of writing fascinates me. And Splinter the Silence is, what, your 29th crime novel or thereabouts? I think so, yeah. I mean, it is a prolific number of books. So. Start just by telling us, what, what journey do you go on when you, you write a book? Do, is it very sequential? Do you come up with the idea, do the research, write it from beginning to end? Do you know where it's going when you start, or is it more jumbled up than that? Tell us what journey you go on. Well, some of it's sequential and some of it isn't. Um, ideas for books come from all sorts of places, 
and they, they tend to sort of rumble round in the back of my head for an indeterminate period of time till they start to take shape. So sometimes I'll have half an idea and it'll sort of kick around for years, maybe, until I find the other half of the idea or the thing that links two different ideas together and, and, and makes sense of them. And as I say, sometimes that can be years in the making. I mean, I've, I've waited as much as 20 years to write a book from getting the first idea for it. But once, once it gets to the point where I have to sit down and start thinking about next year's book, I kind of have a rummage through the back of my head and see what's ready to roll. <laughs> it's like going into the cupboard. Yeah, it is. It's like going into the cupboard and see what falls out on your head. You know, uh, so it's about time that went to the charity shop. <laughs> um, and so once I know what, I'm, what, what the idea is that I'm going to be developing, particularly that year, I mean, I'll already know whose idea is, if, if, uh-huh. it's, a, if it's a series novel or if it's a standalone. And then I have to, f- then I have to figure out what research I need to do before it can get started. Because research also falls into two categories. There's the, the stuff you absolutely have to know before you can get started. So sometimes that can be to do with the setting or it can be to do with the world of the book. So mm-hmm. when I wrote a book called The Last Temptation some years ago, it's mostly set on the waterways mm. of Europe. And there were things I had to know before I could start the book, like how long is a Rhine ship? How long does it take you to get from, from one place to another on the, on the River Rhine? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how many containers can you get on a Rhine ship? And stuff like that. There was sort of technical detail that I needed to know before I could start. So I had to go and find all that out. But there was stuff that, uh, the, the stuff that you, you realise as you're going on through the book that you need to know that you don't know yet. So that's mm-hmm. when you make those frantic phone calls saying, Help! <laughs> Here's what I want to happen. Can it happen like this? And some very patient forensic scientists usually at the other end of phone will sort of, you can hear them rolling their eyes going, well it won't work quite like that but here's what might work instead. Did you have a big team of technical advisors that, you know, from the police or forensics that you can call on to make sure it's realistic? That's a very grand way of putting it. <laughs> I'm a politician, that's what we do. Yes. You, you have a team. <laughs> I, I have a bunch of pals that I ring up and, <laughs> and, and expect to dig me out of a hole. So once I get, you know, so, so once I'm in, then I've got my, my stuff assembled at the beginning of the book and then, then I used to be somebody that planned very carefully. Uh-huh. I, I, I basically sorted it out section by section, chapter by chapter. I used to write it on file cards. I used to write it on file cards of different colours depending on whether it was the main plot or the subplot or something completely other. And it was a bit like Countdown, you know, I'll have two off the pink pile, one off the blue pile. <laughs> Um, until it all made a kind of narrative sense in my head. But now I don't do that anymore. That, that sort of stopped working for me about 10, 11 books mm-hmm. ago. And now uh, I, I, I kind of sit down at the start of the book and I write very intensely from start to finish. And the book gets written over a period of about three months. Wow. Do you ever uh, have more than one on the go at the same time? No, I can't no. write two novels no. at once. Uh-huh. But uh, having said that, there's always stuff going on in the back of my head. You know, uh-huh. if I'm writing one book and something happens to come and swim into my orbit that, that fits in with something else, I'll just make a wee note and put uh-huh. that to one side and get on with what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. I'm very easily distracted. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, if any of those bunch of pals are in the audience, forevermore you're going to be known as her team of officials and advisors. Okay, so... But you're one of these authors, of course, that has seen one of your main uh, fictional series adapted for television. Now, I've read different opinions from different authors about you know, what that experience is like, whether they think it's a good thing or not. Did you have doubts about having the Tony Hill series adapted for television? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I, in fact, three or four companies had come to us 
before coastal productions, mm. we finally made it. And I, I said no. Because mm -hmm. um, one of the things I promised myself when I stopped being a journalist many, many years ago was that I was never again going to work with anybody that I didn't like and I didn't trust. Um, I could never <laughs> apply that principle to my job. <laughs> There are politicians to whom I would have said, but for you, I'll make an exception. <laughs> but uh, no, um, so, so yeah, I, I said no to people before uh -huh. um, Robson and, and his business partner, Sandra, came along because I, I, I thought they either, they didn't really understand what the books were about or they didn't get mm -hmm. what I was trying to do with the books. Um, and then eventually I sat down and I had a meeting with, with Robson and Sandra and they just got it. I could tell that they really mm -hmm. loved the books and they, really, they were really cared about, about the characters. And so we sat down, we, made, we, we agreed we'd do it, and then right at the beginning we sat down and just talked for a couple of days about the character of Tony Hill, about the world of the books, about Carol Jordan, mm -hmm. and how, how, what the key elements were that would have to be imported into any adaptation. And I was very lucky to work with, with people who were essentially very generous with their process as well. Uh, and I, I was a script consultant on the series, so I read every script before mm -hmm. it was made. And there were times when I, I, I'd ring up and say, this is not going to work because of X, Y, and Z, or that's not a Tony thing, it's a Carol mm -hmm. thing. Um, there was only once where I actually had to, to put my foot down. Um, and I, I read the script and I was just like, oh, no, 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 this can't happen. So I rang up uh, Sandra, the exec producer, and I said, you can't kill Carol Jordan's cat. I thought you were you can't kill Carol Jordan. <laughs> It's, it's the only functional relationship the woman has. You know? <laughs> Plus, we'll never sell it in America if you kill the cat. So, I mean, when that, I, said, you, you, I said, you can make it look as if the cat's being killed, but the final frame of the episode has to be the cat walking across the screen, <laughs> identifiably alive. And so they changed that, which was, was fortunate, because I think uh, that, uh, that would have really got hate mail. Because you can do anything like, you know, you can, you can torture small children, you can mutilate women, but don't mess with the animals. I'll ask you a question now that I was going to save for later, actually, but this is the question that everybody I know uh, who reads the Tony Hill novels wants to know. Are Carol and Tony ever, ever going to get it together? Well, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't well, if have... you don't know the answer to that, who does? Well, I don't know it yet. I mean, there will come a point when I know the answer to that. Um, I mean, I, I don't have an overall arc for the storyline mm. of Tony and Carol. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't sit down at the beginning, because initially the, the first book was going to be a standalone. I didn't think it was going to be the start of another series. I had two perfectly serviceable series going on. I didn't need a third one to cause me trouble. But uh, it was clear to me that there were lots of story ideas that would work with, with, with the pair of them as investigators, and also that I had um, almost inadvertently created two characters whose relationship in and of itself mm. could be made very interesting. So the, the short answer is I, I know from book to book. By the time I get to, to about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the book, I have a sense of what the next book's going to be about and I have a sense of mm -hmm. where the relationship's going to go in the next book. But that's as far as it goes. I don't Do you think so. if they did, that would be a natural end to that series? I think it would be. I, I can't see them working together if they were in a sort of formal relationship with each other. I mean, you know, they're, 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 they come close and then they mm. drift apart. They, you know, something separates them. And I, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to think of them sitting around the breakfast table going past the marmalade, you know? Yeah, I struggle with that as well. It's hard to get your head so I suspect uh -huh. that when I come to the point where I really don't have very much else to say about them, or to say with them, I'll let them go off into the sunset. Uh -huh. Hand in hand. Maybe. It's better than killing them. <laughs> 
That's, uh, well, it's just my and, opinion. And they'll, both have their, and they'll both have their hands attached I, I, as well. So yeah. they go hand in hand at the sunset. Yeah, I, I would... If, if I can make a humble request, I would like to see them have a happy ending. Uh-huh. Okay. It's not a first ministerial edict or anything like that. It's just a, so a humble request. In an independent Scotland, request. that would be... Look, that would be <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I, I may venture into the territory of an independent Scotland later. I hope so. Later on. But, I mean, all of your books, they have intricate plots, elaborate crimes. I mean, I, what I think is one of the many things marvellous about your writing is just the complexity of the stories. I mean, Splinter the Silence, the, you know, the fact the literary elements in those crimes, I, I just think is, is wonderful. But there's also usually big themes, big issues dealt with in your book. So Dacre Domain, the minor strike, which given you hail from Fife, an issue I know very close to your heart. The Skeleton Road, the Balkans Wars, the backdrop to that. And in Splinter the Silence, obviously cyber abuse and the misogyny that drives cyber abuses is the big theme issue running through that. Is that because of your own views about that, your own experiences, observations? I know you are a, a very enthusiastic user of social media. We've tweeted occasionally about chocolate mousse and things like that. Um, the important but things. The important things in life. But seriously, I mean, is this, is this a reflection of the fact that you think in our society today, cyber abuse, misogyny, and the interrelationship between the two is still a, a big issue? Is a big issue. Uh, is a major. Is a major issue. But I, I think that these 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 things find their way into my work not because I'm trying to make a point about writing about these particular mm -hmm. things. I don't sit down and say this is going to be my anti-misogyny novel, or this is going this is going to be my homelessness novel, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, because I, I I'm someone who engages with the world very much. You know, I read the papers. I listen to the Today program. I read things online. I listen to people on the bus, in the pub, whatever. I'm, I am, I'm interested by what drives our, our society, what makes us, what's the glue that holds mm. us together, what are the wedges that drive us apart, what do people really think about things. And because, because that's the way I engage with the world, it finds its way into my books because those are the things that concern me, mm -hmm. those are the things that interest me. So, you know, with something like, you know, this cyber abuse and, and, and the kind of online misogyny, it's something that I've been aware of because it's been, it's been out there, it's been talked about, it's been written about, and it's been, you know, it's been inflicted upon friends of mine. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've seen friends of mine be, you know, get showered with vile abuse um, online for nothing more serious than expressing an opinion that's contrary to the opinion of some other people out there. And, and it astonishes me, you know, um, the latest thing we've had is, is the, the thing uh, with Mumsnet people mm. being what's called swatted. Um, I don't know if you, if you read about this, but uh, essentially uh, somebody rings up the police and goes, there's an armed man in the, back of, in the back garden of such and such a house in the middle of the night. So the police do their duty, turn up mob-handed with the, with the armed police officers, and they're knocking on the door and they're shining the lights and they're you know, investigating what is a hoax call. Now you imagine that's your house, that's your wains in their bed, and there's big men with, with guns and, and Kevlar vests running through your house looking for the person in the back garden with the gun. That is, I think, a form of terrorism. Mm. And what, what, what have these women on Mum's Net done? I mean, it's not as if they're even the radical edge of feminism. You know, <laughs> you go to Mum's Net for finding out how to stop your baby have colic or the best recipe for dishwasher vodka. <laughs> you know, 
I'll tell you yeah? later. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got any to bring back to Butte House afterwards? Uh, no, I've, I've, no. I've got some. I've got some really nice chili vodka. Yeah. If you like yeah, a bit we, of we digress. But we do digress. Uh -huh. But so so yeah. I mean so so those are the kind of things that that uh, I suppose um, they they affect me emotionally. They, they they make me upset. They make me angry. So mm -hmm. they are things that find their way into what I'm writing mm. about. Uh, as I say, not in a, a, a sort of tub-thumping way, um, because I think if you, st if you go into a book thinking, I'm going to deliver a message here, you'll write a really bad book. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it's, it's, um, it's putting my characters in, in the way of things that happen in everyday life. I think the crime novel has become the novel of, of social history. I think in 100 years' time, people who want to know how we lived now mm. will go to the crime novel. Because the, the beauty of the crime novel is that by its very nature, you can span the whole of society if you want to. You can go as wide or as narrow as you want. You can take a little hermetically sealed group like an Agatha Christie brought up to date, or you can do something, something that, that takes in you know, anyone from the first minister to a, a, a homeless person on the street corner. Mm. Because you've got, by its very nature, you've got the victim and their circle of friends and, and family. You've got the witnesses. You've got the police officers, you've got the media, you've got the forensic mm. scientists, you've got people who are just brought in incidentally into the orbit of a crime. And so with, with that potential, you can, you can investigate all sorts of lives, you can shine a light on the world you live in and talk about the things that, that matter to you. Mm. How did you come to write, I mean, I think of all your books, I think if I had to pick a favourite, it's The Skeleton Road. It's just a fantastic book and I read it round about the time of the 20th anniversary of Srebrenica. How did you come to write about the Balkans? Well, again, it was, it was um, the thing, I had these things kicking around in my head. Um, when I was at Oxford, um, I, I became very friendly with, with a philosophy mm. down there, and she got involved in the secret university movement at the end of the 1980s when people from behind the Iron Curtain approached British academics to say, there's things we're not allowed to teach, things we're not allowed to talk about can you come over and, and, and run some secret seminars for us? So a group of academics initially from Oxford, but then at the wider base, they'd go over to like Prague or, or, or to, to Budapest for their holidays, and they'd take with them philosophy textbooks disguised as airport novels. <laughs> so, so they'd go with, you know, Harold Robbins, but inside it was Wittgenstein. <laughs> and they'd run these seminars in, in, in people's cellars and in, in the back rooms of pubs. And eventually she got, uh, she got clocked by the authorities and she got barred from, from going to these places. But at that point, Yugoslavia had, had kind of split away from the Soviet bloc and the Inter-University Centre at Dubrovnik was a place where um, academics from East and West could meet. So she started doing quite a lot of teaching there on her vacations. And so it happened that she was there when the siege of Dubrovnik started and she was trapped in the city for the duration of the siege. And being the kind of woman that she was, um, with a very strong sense of duty and, and I mean, she was very English, very stiff upper lip. She just got on with it mm. you know, and she wrote and she, she agitated and she raised money back in the UK for Dubrovnik. So she, she, she had an extraordinary experience there. She, she was made an honorary general of the Croatian army and uh, she was honoured uh, by the Croatian state and by the city of Dubrovnik. There's a square named after her in Dubrovnik. And all the time back home in, in the UK, you know, her college in Oxford, my old college in Oxford, are going, you're supposed to be teaching this term, Dr Wilkes. <laughs> <laughs> you're the, you, it's your turn to be dean. Why, 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 are, you, why are you getting in a war zone? Um, so there was that story that was kicking around in my head and I thought, you know, there are, th this is the kind of story that gets, that gets forgotten, that gets yeah. lost in, in, the, in the sort of formal histories of the time. So that was there, I thought, this needs to be written about. And then my friend Sue Black, the professor at, at Dundee, 
um, who is one of my one of my pals, one of my gang. One of your advisors. Yes, yes, yes. One, of my, one, one of my team of advisors. Yes. Um, was she? She was. Uh, she's a forensic anthropologist, and she was involved in the the um, excavation of the mass graves uh, in in the Balkans um, at, at Srebrenica and, and other places. And she told me some of the the, the stories of, of what she'd experienced over there in the aftermath. Um, that when, when things were being uncovered, that we started to understand the extent of what had gone on. So again, I had these two um, extraordinary stories. And you know, there's, in my head, there was somehow I couldn't be able yeah. to bring these two together. There's a book in here somewhere, but I'm not quite sure what it is yet. So they've been sitting around in the back of my head for a few years. And what triggered them, what brought them together, was a, a kind of unexpected uh, source. I came across this book, which was originally published in 1937, but been reissued as a facsimile, called The Night Climbers of Cambridge. And it's about undergraduates in Cambridge who free climb the outside of college buildings. And there were all these photographs of these young men in their cricket flannels and their <laughs> jumpers hanging off the top of King's College Chapel. And I was just thinking, that is amazing, that's extraordinary. I just, why would you do that? You know, it's just mental. Mm. Um, but. The other part of me is thinking, yeah, but what if you got up there and you found a body? <laughs> Most because people's minds don't work like that, no, of course. No. I've just come back from a lovely holiday in France, you know, a lovely boating holiday. Um, and it's, 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 it's marvellous in France, you know, the, it's, it's very pretty, you know, the rivers in France. And, and, um, and in this country, when you, when, you're, when you rent a boat, you've got to tie up at night at either marinas or a jetty or you know, some kind of approved mooring place. A wee birdie, but, uh, otherwise known as your partner, told me you fell into the water. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> What's your point? <laughs> Just going to throw in. Wasn't it the falling in that was hard, it was the getting out. <laughs> but um, one of the things that they do there is that because you can moor up anywhere in France, you don't have to be at an official parking spot, as it were. Uh, they give you, you obviously got to be able to tie the boat onto something. So they give you these great big metal stakes, like this, this, this long, and a great big hammer. <laughs> and, you know, it's beautiful, it's idyllic, the sun's shining, the birds are singing, there's this beautiful woodland around the river, and I'm thinking, you could put that right through somebody with one blow, because <laughs> they're really sharp, these things. I mean, why would you send people off on a boating holiday with a murder weapon? <laughs> And I can't, I, I can't help it. It's, it's, it's just the way my mind works. You know, I'm, I'm a bit Pavlovian about it. You know, show me a metal stake and I'm away. It is probably better you write it down than do it right oh, enough. So I mean, let's yeah. take that. I mentioned the Skeleton Roads, and I think possibly my favourite of all your your books. The other thing that runs through the background of Skeleton Roads uh, is the referendum. Um, now, what struck me, because it, it's not dominant in the novel, but it's there in the background, and what struck me about it was all the characters who mention it, mention it because they're undecided. When you were writing that, were you still undecided on the question of independence? I was actually, when I, when I, when I was writing the book, I was still swithering. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have, we have a flat on the top floor, it's a long way up. And we did think about having a plaque on the door saying Swithering Heights. <laughs> Um, but uh, I, was, I, was, I was undecided for, for quite a long time um, and I think a lot of people were undecided uh, and made their minds up during the course of the campaign. And the other thing I wanted very much not to do was I knew that I was writing the book in the first half of the year and I, knew, I, and I didn't know what the outcome of the referendum was going to be and the book, would, was, the book was 
due to be published the week before the referendum. Mm. And I thought it's, 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 it's not something that I can write about that's not good, which whatever I do, mm. I run the risk of making myself look really stupid a week after the book comes out. And on balance, I prefer not to look stupid where I can avoid it. <laughs> so I thought it was better to, to be a bit more balanced, a bit mm. more restrained. But of course, I don't have to be now, because we've had the referendum. What decided you? What well, decided me? Um, honestly, mm -hmm. I thought about it long and hard. And it seemed to me that so many of the key questions, one side said one thing, another side said another thing. And you couldn't, there was no way of, of uh, establishing which of those was the accurate position of which was actually going to be the case. So I, I did um, what I thought was the sensible thing and I looked at the record of the Scottish Parliament since it had been installed uh, and I looked at what the Scottish Parliament had done and I set that against what Westminster had done in the corresponding period and I decided that what we had done with the powers we had been given were much more in tune with my view of the world than what had happened in Westminster. So that, was, that, that became the point at which I made my decision. It, it seemed to me self-evident at that point we were better at managing our affairs than Westminster was at managing them for us. Yeah. But, um, you know, not everybody agreed with me, obviously. It was one of, obviously, sadly. If um, you want to come outside and talk about it, <laughs> the First Minister will see you afterwards. <laughs> I remember it was one of my favourite moments of the referendum campaign, actually. I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you. When I, I think it was in The Guardian you did a piece saying mm. you were voting yes, and I hadn't known until that point, and you were undecided, and I remember thinking, yes, <laughs> she's, she's, uh, she's in favour. Do you still think we'll be independent? I think so, yeah. yeah? I, think it's, I, think, I think it's a matter of time. Mm. Um, I, think, I think an awful lot of people who voted no are feeling pretty profoundly betrayed at this point. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Some of you are. I know that because you've told me. <laughs> there's a line in uh, Splinter the Silence, and this doesn't spoil uh, the plot at all, but there's a, a line about Scotland or about Scots where uh, somebody, I can't remember which character it is, actually says, oh, Scotland, that's the nation that always runs towards the gunfire, you know, conjuring up this image of a fearless people. Um, do you think that's... Is that how you see Scotland? Do you think that view has to be I think altered a little bit? I think that's how we like to see ourselves. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the, the truth is, is a bit more nuanced than that. It's like there's that line from the proclaimers, you know, we boast and then we cower. Mm. You know, so we do both. Mm. Sometimes we're fearless and sometimes we're feared. <laughs> One of the other things I, I like about your uh, books and particularly... I think the Tony Hill books, although I sometimes wonder if I'm reading too much into what I'm about to see here, there's always a kind of hint of a, a moral dilemma, you know, so it, there's, there's always seems to me implicitly you're kind of asking the question, do the ends justify the means? So Stacey, the computer whisk kid in the Tony Hill books, frankly breaks the law a lot in the name of solving crime and again this is getting close to uh, plot spoiling, but what happens to Carol in the opening chapters of Splinter the Silence and how that is dealt with, the sting in the tail at the end of that, is that, are you posing these kind of moral dilemmas? Do the ends justify the means? Is, is that something that deliberately runs through your writing? I think it's something that exercises me mm -hmm. as, a, as, you know, as, as a human being, as a member of society. You know, how far do we go 
to uh, ensure the safety of our society? How far do we go to find justice? And I think one of the, if, if there is a, a thread that runs through my books, uh, is a sense that there's a gap between justice and the law. And what the law delivers often doesn't feel like justice. That always often feels like there's, there's, there's a gap there that, that, that what the court, the process of taking something through the courts, the process of letting the law go through its, its, its process is an important part of civilised society. It's important that we don't just become lawless and take the law into our own hands. It's important that we don't become a vigilante society mm. driven by vendetta. But equally, there is a lot of times when people who are involved in a case or people who, who just read about it in the papers have a sense of, that's not right, that's not fair. And so one of the things that I, I, I try to, to deal with in, in my books is, is how, you, how you bridge that gap, how you mitigate that gap, how people deal with that gap. And sometimes people deal with it in ways that are perhaps not morally acceptable. But I think those are things that you have to explore. Mm -hmm. um, in, in a way, you have to explore doing it the wrong way so that you understand the right way. Mm -hmm. um, so and that's that absolutely the, the theme of Skeleton Road, of course. You know, mm. Somebody who is frustrated that international war criminals are not getting brought to justice through the formal means, yeah. so very much takes the law into our own hands. Yeah, and that, I mean, that becomes problematic for all sorts of mm -hmm. reasons. Um, mm. Because once, once, once we as, as individuals start, start thinking that we're right, and, and we know what's right. And that's a very dangerous, it's a very slippery slope mm -hmm. to start down. Um, because, you know, once you, that momentum of being right, that momentum of self-righteousness can build up till it just erodes all your other instincts. Mm -hmm. And because you know you're right, mm -hmm. uh, everything else falls away. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the other things I know is uh, very close to your heart is, is gay rights. And it strikes me your books are published in how many countries? Forty? Countries well, are about yeah, forty languages yeah. and are published in more than forty countries. Yeah. yeah so your, your books, and, and many of your books have very strong gay, lesbian characters. Paula in the Tony Hill novels, one of my favourite of your characters. Although in Skeleton Road, it's fair to say the villain is the strong uh, gay character. But does that give you any issues that your books have been sold in countries some of which will not recognise gay rights, where? Uh, being gay will still be against the law. Is, is that something that gives you any issues? I'm happy that the books are published there because I think it's important that there is something there that people can, can go to in those countries. If there is something where they can go and read something that actually validates their lives in some way. Um, and I mean, I was very proud when, when Report for Murder was published in Russia in 2001. I don't think we're published there now, by the way. But back then, it was the first, I mean, I, I was told it was the first ever novel officially published in Russia with a lesbian central character, which was extraordinary to me. But, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was immediately very popular, went to the bestseller list and all that. So I'm glad that the books are out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I will not go to those countries to promote my books because I'm not prepared to go to a country where if I was a citizen of that country, I would not be allowed to speak and I wouldn't be allowed to be my, myself and to live the life that I live mm -hmm. openly in this country. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 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 that's, that's where I, I draw the line. Mm -hmm. I'm happy for the books to be yeah. out there, but I'm not prepared to go and add luster to regimes that persecute people like me. Yeah, yeah. Just I can't can change all the world, but I'll try and change wee bits You're of it. You're doing you know. not bad. Just a, a warning, I'm in a few minutes just going to start to come to the audience, so get your thinking caps on and 
Uh, we'll try and get as many questions in as we can. Uh, just another if you couple don't put your hands questions. up, so just start picking I'll just pick on you at random. Another couple of questions from me. You know, if you were to be asked by a, I don't know, 45-year-old sort of uh, would-be novelist, you know, <laughs> how do you... Seriously, I mean, for a lot of young up-and-coming writers, you are this amazing role model. I mean, what, did, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to be the Val McDermott of, you know, the next 10, 20 years? Probably wait till you're finished before Aye. you overtake. <laughs> that, but, would be, that would be quite good, But, yes. but serious, <laughs> what, what advice would you give to somebody who, who wants to get established, get published? Just do it. Uh, a lot of people talk about doing it um, and, and, you know, sort of, but then they go, oh, but I've not got time or, you know, I can't, I can't fit it into my life. Um, if you want to do it badly enough, you'll find a way to do it. Um, I wrote my first four books on Monday afternoons because that was, that was my time off. Mm. Uh, I, I worked on a Sunday newspaper. Monday was my day off. And on Monday afternoons, I wrote from 2 o'clock till 7 o'clock. And that was actually probably much more productive than I am now in many ways. Because all week I'd be thinking about what I was going to write on the Monday afternoon. I'd be planning out the next section. I'd be thinking over what I'd done the week before and thinking, I need to change that or I need to rewrite that. I need to rework that. You can always find a slot. The thing, the thing to do is to find the time of day where you work best. I know some people get up at like 4 o'clock in the morning and write for two hours before the rest of the house awakes. I mean, I couldn't do that. The only time I see four o'clock in the morning is when it's from the night before. <laughs> you know, I couldn't do that. Um, but find the time of day that, that, that you function best and, and carve out a slot and stick to it religiously. You know, Mary Higgins Clark, who has written dozens of very successful romantic suspense novels, when she started out, she had five kids. And she used to, in the evening, she'd get the kids to bed, she'd sit down and have her supper with her husband. He would sit down and, and read the paper, watch the news, and she would write for an hour every night between 10 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And that's when she started. Mm. She wanted it that badly. You've got to really want it, and then you've got to sit and do it. Um, and don't, the, one, the other one thing I would say is don't try and write the perfect first chapter. You will never write the perfect first chapter. Um, and while you're trying to refine and polish the first chapter to within an inch of its life, what you should actually be doing is cracking on and getting to the end, because by the time you get to the end, the first chapter will have changed anyway. So it's all been a waste of time. I, I remember my, my second novel, um, I, you know, I'd written the first one, and it was, it, was, you know, it was on the way to being published. I was doing revisions and things. And I was getting on with the second novel, and I sent the first draft of it off to my agent. And uh, she, she rang me up and she said, darling, she said, darling, the first five chapters are absolutely marvellous. They're so beautifully written. The, the, the prose is just wonderful. And it just, it just flows so beautifully. But darling, we both know it all begins in chapter six, don't we? <laughs> so we'll just lose those first five chapters, shall we? And anything you've told us in the first five chapters that we need to know, you can just tell us when we need to know it. So that was me Wonderful. putting my box. Very diplomatic. It was the best piece of advice I've ever been given as well. I mean, I, and she was right. The story did begin in chapter six. And she was also right that I was able mm. to feed the stuff in yeah. as and when it mattered. So I think you have to, you have to say, be prepared to stick with it mm -hmm. and get to the end of that first draft. Does it get easier? I mean, you've written all these books. Does it, does after it you've written five or six or seven, does it get easier? Or, or is every one harder because you're trying to outdo the last so one? Now you've been running the country for a wee while. <laughs> Do, does it get easier? <laughs> um, or do you, 
Or do you find that you do you find that Sorry. you do you find that you learn from did your nobody mistakes? Tell Ms. Mc... <laughs> did nobody tell Ms. McDermott I was asking the questions? Um, uh, I hope so is the answer yeah. to your question. So, so but, but, but I know yeah. it's a daft question, but it's not a daft question. Do, do you at get all. better? Does it get? Does the process get easier, or or does the pressure just get more and more and more because you always have to exceed the well, expectations the that you created? The pressure comes from me, really, um, and and for me the challenge is to try and make each book better or at least different mm. from anything I've done before. So yeah, it is harder to make those incremental mm -hmm. shifts. When you get to, it's like learning to drive a car. You know, first time you sit behind the wheel of a car, you like. There's the steering wheel, and there's the pedals, there's the gear stick, there's the mirrors. I'll never get all these mm. things working together. I'll never be able to do the hands and the feet and the eyes. And then within a few weeks, you've kind of got the basics mm. down. Mm. Now, but once you get to the point where you can, you can just do it a bit, and then you get to pass your test, and then getting to be an advanced driver is that much harder, then getting to be a rally driver is that much harder still. So it's kind of, it's kind of like that. The, the first steps, the first basic skills are quite easy to evolve, mm. and then, but then try to, try to get more, more tools into your, into your toolbox and, and, and finding it, thinking of better ways, more economical ways to do it, uh, to write better, mm. to tell your stories better, to, to, to make your characters feel richer and, 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 and more like the real thing. It, it, those incremental steps get harder, mm. I think. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm never satisfied. <laughs> Um, what do you, what do you think is your best? If somebody was, had never read any of your books that said to you, Val, if I was just to read one book, the first one ever, which one would you say that's my best book? Well, that's a difficult question. And when people ask me what they should it's start I suppose with, it's like asking somebody who their favourite child is. That, <laughs> yeah, but in a lot of families I know, that wouldn't be hard. <laughs> That's his pal she's talking about again, by the way. <laughs> but um, no, uh, I think um, it's, it's difficult. But when people ask me what book they should start with, what I generally ask them is, how scared do you like to be? <laughs> um, but but for, for, for me, the reasons I... My relationship with my books is different from the relationship mm. a reader has with my books. You, know, read, you read my books and I hope that you get drawn into them and, and you feel a connection to the characters, you feel a connection to the story. And some books will speak to you more loudly than others. Um, for me, um, when I look at one of my books, I think of, for me, it has the, the connection of what was going on in my life when I was, was writing that book. So it has those connections mm -hmm. for me. So there's, one, there's at least one of my books that I don't even want to pick up because it just reminds me of a time when it felt like my whole life has been flushed down the toilet mm. and I just was miserable. And I sort of ground that book out and I just don't even want to think about it now. Um, but I think the book that probably means most to me uh, from... from all my work is um, The Mermaid Singing uh, because it was so different from anything mm. I had done up to that point and it was so different from anything that anybody else was writing in the UK at that point um, and I had this, this idea for, for the story and, and unusually for me, you know, I was talking earlier about my method and how things take a long time to, to generate this was one book where it just dropped into my head kind of fully formed I was driving down the M6 listening to Jenny Murray on Women's Hour you know, she's got a lot, to, a lot to answer for, has Jenny. And this whole idea just fell into place. And I, had to literally, I literally pulled over on the hard shoulder to write it down because I was frightened that I'd forget it by the time I got home. Um, and it was, it was, as I say, so different from anything I'd done before that my, my then editor wouldn't give me an advance for it until she'd seen the first draft. 
Uh, she said, no, I can't, can't give you an advance for that because it's, it's, I have no idea if you can do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> confidence. She said, I believe you can do it, but I'm, I'm not going to give you any money. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I wrote the book and I was, I was really uncertain about it and, uh, to the point where I actually sent my agent the first 100 pages, which I never do. I never let anybody see a bit of a book. Because um, I was so unsure if it was, if it was working. And she just she, she called me up and said, darling, it's wonderful. Just, just get on with it, would you? Tell us just, because this has been live streamed, just tell folk out there who might never have read this book what the, the plot is. It's, it's the first Tony Hill and Carol Jordan uh -huh. novel. Um, and, and it's a book where, where young men are being uh, abducted and tortured and murdered. Uh, and it's the first time that uh, Tony Hill, who's a psychological profiler, has been brought to, uh, to work with the police in the, the fictional city of, of Bradfield in the north of England. And the book is about um, Tony's mental battle with the killer, and it's also about the, the first time that Tony and Carol come to, to, to work together and, and about the, the, the creative tension within the police department and the creative tension between Tony and Carol. So it's a book that's got a, it's got a lot going on. It's a lot, it's a lot of darkness. Mm. Um, I mean, when I was... <laughs> At the time, this was just before the internet was, was the, the, the marvellous beast that it is now, uh, you had to go and look at books a lot of the time. And I, I got some very strange looks from booksellers and librarians when I, I walked in and said, um, have you got any good illustrated guides to medieval torture? By <laughs> 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 um, happy serendipity, I was in Italy uh, on holiday that summer and uh, it was the first torture museum had opened up in San Gimignano. <laughs> And I, I mean, I, I was, because I, I was straight into, you know, yeah. research mode, writer mode. So I'm going around taking pictures and making notes. And other people are sort of taking their children away from me. <laughs> Step away from the weird lady. <laughs> so I, I was, I was, I, say I, was, I was writing this book and I just really wasn't sure about it. But anyway, I finished it. I sent it off. My agent loved it. My editor loved it. Uh, it was published. I mean, one of these awful things. The book was published minus the last five pages which is a pretty serious blow for a thriller, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, but fortunately, the judges on the Gold Dagger Award mm. had been sent advanced proofs, which had all the pages in it. Uh, and they gave the book the Gold Dagger for mm. the best crime novel of the year. And it was, that was a huge change for mm. me in terms of how I was perceived, both here and abroad. There's, there's some countries where, uh, J Japan, for example, mm. they love people who win prizes. So you, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't translate the books before, but they, they, they took all the books since then. Um, and, but the, th the thing that was really important for me as a writer was not the commercial success of the book. What it, what it was for me was that I had set out to do something that was completely different from anything I had done before, and I had found a way to tell the story. And that book's been kind of my touchstone ever since. You know, whenever I sit down to work on a book and I'm struggling mm. a bit and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to tell this story, because that's always the hard thing with the standalones. The series novels, there's a sort of certain format that, that you tell the story in, but the standalone novels are always about finding the way to tell this story. So whenever I'm sitting there thinking, whose voice is this story and mm. how does the structure work? How do I tell the story? How does it all come together? I just take a deep breath. And I think about the mermaid singing, I think how many sleepless nights I had over trying to get that sorted right. And I think, I can do it, I can do it. So that, that's, that's, that's what that book means to me. And, and for me, that will always be, you know, at the heart of, it's the heart of my work. It, it proved to me that I could, I could if, I, if, I, if I really worked at something, I could, I could find a way to tell any story that was clamouring in my head and my heart to be told. No, you proved that time and time and time again. Uh, right, I'm going to open it up to 
the audience, I'll take a couple of questions at a time. Um, there are roving microphones on both sides, so I'll take the lady here, uh, the gentleman behind, and then I will come over here. Thank you, Val. Can you hear me? Um, I'm a recent convert to your books, not least starting with the short stories inspired by this event. Um, my question is, as an expert in dangerous people, what's your opinion on Nicola Sturgeon being dubbed <laughs> the most dangerous woman in Britain? And I'm sure the first one rule that question out. On that too. You'll pass the microphone back. <laughs> Well, I think, like, I mean, I'm not alone in this country in thinking that uh, Nicola's very impressive, but appears to have, so far, no homicidal tendencies. <laughs> Mind you, if you ever wanted to write a novel uh, about a crime in politics, I could give you a list of villains no. <laughs> to consider. Uh, Sorry, there's, there's, uh, yes, and potential victims, probably, no. if you, you wanted. I'm going to take the gentleman here. As I get older, I am enjoying short stories more. With your great plot ideas, your descriptive powers, and your technical knowledge, have you considered writing a, a book of short stories? I have got yeah. a book of short stories. It just came out earlier this it year. <laughs> available in the bookshop. It's called Stranded. <laughs> but it, it does actually cover quite a long period of, of time because um, I'm not a prolific short story writer, mostly because when I think of a good idea for a short story, I think, that's all very well, but it would make a very good subplot. <laughs> But, but, and they tend to come in, in, in spates. I tend to write four or five in a, a short period of time, and then I don't think of anything for like two years. Mm -mm. Anybody over here? Uh, lady in the green and up here, yeah, aye. And then a few rows behind. When, when writing a novel, how much time is spent in the research? Well, that really is uh, how long is a piece of string question. It depends very much on what I'm writing about. Some things uh, I'm writing about stuff I already know quite a lot about already. Uh, sometimes I'm, I'm, what actually triggers the, the idea for the book in the first place is, is something that comes up in conversation with a forensic scientist or, or a, a police officer or some, some specialist in the field. So in a sense, I've almost done the, the research before I even get the idea for the book properly. Um, but sometimes you can get too drawn into the research. I did a book some years ago called The Grave Tattoo, which is, is set against the backdrop of the mutiny on the bounty. It's a, a, a thriller set in the present day, but it's predicated on the fact that William Wordsworth and Fletcher Christian went to school together. Um, so in order, to, I had the, and, and there was a rumour that went around the Lake District for many years that Fletcher Christian had not died on Pitcairn, but that he had come back to the lakes where he'd been sheltered from justice by his family and his friends. And I, I knew that if I was going to write this and make it work, I really had to, to do my research into both Wordsworth's life and on, on the Mutiny on the Bounty. Well, you would be staggered how many books there are out there about William Wordsworth and the Mutiny on the Bounty. And I think I read every single one of them. Um, my editor actually gave me an extra six months to, to write the book so that I could get all the research done. And the trouble was I just got so bogged down in the research, I couldn't see the wood for the trees anymore. And I, I, I literally put all the books away and relied on my memory, the, the key things that I remembered about the story, the key things that, that fed into the, 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 the way I wanted the plot to work, and then went back and double-checked them against the reference books towards the end when, when the book had all come together. So I think it's easy to be seduced by the possibilities of the research, and, and you get totally bogged down, and you end up doing far too much, and you end up 
I think um, wearing your research too heavily. And, and what I've tried to, to do is just strip it back to the minimum now. I try to, to, when I'm putting stuff in that I've learned about, I try and keep it as basic as I can. So the reader has the sense, of, uh, the sort of authentic sense of, of having been there, of having been taken to this different place, without me feeling I have to tell them everything I have learned mm. to show how very, very clever I have been. <laughs> There's a, um, did I read something recently that there is a Val McDermott forensic investigation course. So people who have been trained in forensics go online and become part of one of your plots. Not quite, it's not quite the Val McDermott investigative course. It's, a, it's a, what's called a MOOC, a uh -huh. massive online open course. But it is based on one of your well, no, plots? I, no, not, well, it's kind, it's kind I've of. I've clearly got this wrong. I'll, 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 I'll just explain it to you first. OK, so. thank you. <laughs> um, it's, it's a, what it is, is it's a course run by the, the forensics department at Dundee. Yeah. Um, and it's about human identification and people, anyone can sign up for this course, it's free. Um, and uh, you, it takes place over six weeks. Each module focuses on a particular element of forensic science and you get, the, the, you get told where to go and look for, for the answers to this investigative process and every week you have to take the investigation a, a little bit further. And if you get really interested, then there's lots of investigative sources where you can follow yeah. it much wider. And when you get to the end of the six weeks, you should be able to identify the body on the hillside in Dundee. And at that point, you will, you will get access to a short story I have written that explains the background okay. to the story, how, that, how, that, how those human remains came to be on the hillside in Dundee. So that's supposed to be the sort of, you know, the inducement to get to the end of it. Right, okay. <laughs> so, lady at the back, yeah. Hello, uh, Val, I'm a big fan of yours. Nicola also, can't believe you didn't recognise me, by the way. We'll have a chat about that afterwards. Um, Val, you talked before about your approach to writing novels and whether there's ideas going around in your head and sometimes it takes 20 years to come to fruition. Is it any different when you write as Val McDermott or VL McDermott? Is there any difference in your approach to your novels? No, the VL McDermott thing is, is kind of a red herring. It's... Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a purely commercial thing uh, and all the books have been written as Val McDermott. Some of them have been published as VL McDermott for complicated commercial reasons which I won't bore you with but they're all to do with the way that bookshops order their, their books. Right. <laughs> so it's not a like in banks, in M banks. No, it's not no, there's, there's, there's actually different. no difference. They, yeah. they were all originally written as, as Val McDermott and mm -hmm. published as such. Mm -hmm. Okay, a couple of questions here. Yeah, lady right in the middle and uh, the gentleman just at the back here. Um, Rob Singh Beam is phenomenal in The Wire and the Blood. If you had any up-and-coming series, what would you be your... If you could pick a favourite actor to star in it, what would you, who would you be, or actress? Well, I always think that's a bit, uh, a bit of, of, of one of those things that uh, you shouldn't really wish too hard because then you might get it. <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't think about these things, and I really don't think about these things because um, so many factors are involved in who ends up playing characters on TV and in film. Uh, sometimes it's who's available, sometimes it's who the director wants to work with. And if you start getting sort of fixed ideas in your head, all, you, all you're doing is setting yourself up for disappointment. Um, you know, frankly, I'd be just happy to get uh, a good scriptwriter, a good director, and a good producer, and hope they can find the right actor, and then then I'll be happy. You know, it's it's, it's there's so many things that have to fall in place, and I was very lucky with Wire in the Blood and with the adaptation at Coastal also did with right. Place of Execution. I think. Um, I, I, no, I wouldn't I, I, pick Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that fairly categorically. 
Okay, Benedict, if you're watching, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, when, when I read Tony Hill, now I see Robson Green. When you write yeah. Tony Hill, do you see Robson Green? Is that how you visualise him? I do, actually, because Tony Hill's physicality in my head was very like Robson Green. Mm -hmm. If you actually read the, the first description of, of Tony and the Mermaid singing, uh, it, it could be a description of Robson. Mm. Um, so that was, that was lucky. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, so yeah, because because they're, because they're very physically alike. Now when I write Tony, I see Robson, but mm -hmm. I don't actually feel like that about any of the other characters because mm -hmm. the actors who played them were not like the character in yeah. my head. So although Hermione Norris was a great Carol Jordan, she's not the Carol Jordan in my head. Mm -hmm. So I still have my Carol Jordan. Mm -hmm. She's mine, mm -hmm. all mine. <laughs> and, and and the other characters like Paula. And I mean, bizarrely, although. Paula kind of started on the screen rather than on the page. The Paula in my head is not the actress who played right. Paula on the telly. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. kind of a bit of a strange paradox. Yeah. Okay, gentlemen, here. I was wanting to. You, you're ask not the gentleman there, yes. but <laughs> go on. I was wanting to, to ask. There's a lot of good crime programs on television, and I'm curious to know: Do you watch them, and you know, do they influence you? Um, I do watch some crime on television, but uh, not everything. Um, uh, I, I, there's an awful lot, as you said, an awful lot of crime on television, and I do have a life. Um, but uh, when it's good, I, I watch stuff that's good, yeah. Um, I don't think it necessarily influences me, um, except insofar as whenever a writer does something clever in the way of storytelling mm. or in the way of writing, that becomes something that you absorb and think, I can learn from that, I can, I can, fig I can use that in my work, I can use the way they do that. Not specific, not specific, not stories, not stories as such, but the way of doing a bit of storytelling or something. Um, and you know, you, you occasionally see something that's just so beautifully put together, like Paul Abbott's No Offence, it's just like, wonderfully constructed and you just have to you, you mean, I, I see something like that and I'm, I'm, as, I'm as, as impressed by the the construction if you like as I, as I am by the pleasure mm. of watching it Do you read a lot of crime fiction? I do read a lot of crime mm. fiction, I read a lot of fiction generally yeah. Um, but yeah, I read a lot of crime fiction mm -hmm. and uh, that's, that's how you become a better writer, mm -hmm. is by reading Absolutely. Um, Who's your favourite author? I don't, I don't really have a favourite author, oh, I mean on. it's it's Ms. Dermot, I feel you, I'm going to have to press you to answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. <laughs> well, it's a very good question, First Minister. <laughs> um, now, if, if we really follow the normal pattern, you will answer a completely different question <laughs> to the one I've just asked you. Yes. Um, I, I generally find when I go on holiday, I like to read a book that's set in the country <laughs> I'm visiting. <laughs> So you're not going to tell us who your favourite author well, is? Well, I have lots. I have lots of authors whose work I really enjoy. Yeah, I, um, I mean, and, and, and they range from, you know, from from golden age classics like Josephine Tay um, to to you know the, the mm. great uh, the great quartet of recent history of, of Reginald Hill, Ruth Rendell, P. D. Mm. James, and Colin Dexter. But also, we've got a tremendous crop of writers uh, in this country, particularly at the moment. You know, you've probably seen walking into the book festival the posters for Malcolm Mackay's new book. He's a terrific writer, mm. young man from Stornoway. You wouldn't think he'd, he was from Stornoway to read his books. I mean, the, the dark, dark noir. Um, we've got tremendous writers like Denise Minor, yeah. Louise Welsh, Ian Rankin, Christopher Brookmeyer, Lynn Anderson, who's here in the room somewhere. Um, a great crop of Scottish yeah. writers. And, and, and we seem to have discovered this, this great well of, yeah. of good crime fiction yeah. in this country we just really now. Do I don't know why that should be. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Wealth of so we've all got people we want to murder, perhaps. Something, something about our psyche, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, right, the gentleman that was meant to... Do you still want to ask a question? 
Yes, OK, carry on. Patience is a virtue. Val, if, if somebody had told you you couldn't be a journalist and then a writer, um, and you probably had to be a politician, do you think you would have been successful? And if so, what, what are your strengths? I would never have made a politician. I've got, I'm, I'm, too, I'm, I'm too rubbish at keeping my mouth shut. <laughs> I, can, I, I, I just say what I think. I don't necessarily think through the consequences of what I think. Um, and I never, I never wanted to be a politician. I've never had any ambitions for political office. If I hadn't been a, a writer, I would have been a musician, I think. I would have liked to be Joni Mitchell, but the job was taken. <laughs> and I never had the hair, you know. Right, I'm going to take another couple. We're rapidly running out of time. Gentleman down here at the front, and then uh, lady here. Gentleman here, yeah. Val, you said earlier on tonight that you are easily distracted. Now, I'm keen to find out what uh, sort of things distract you. Can you give us a couple of examples, please? Oh, a cream donut. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably tell. Uh, um, the book that I, was read, that I started reading last night at bedtime, that, that I really would like to read another chapter of right now. Um, a computer game. The burning desire to walk to the post office. Uh, the need for a cup of coffee. Um, all sorts coffee of things. Coffee plays a massive role in some of your <laughs> in my books. my life, yes. And you're like, but yeah. So coffee, uh, what's the other thing in, in gaming? Are these oh. all kind of personal sort of... Yeah, you, 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 you draw from Things, your own yeah. life. I mean, that's the thing about writing, yeah. is you cannibalise your own life, and then you cannibalise everybody yeah. else's, you know. Uh -huh. Don't sit too close. <laughs> <laughs> right, lady here. Apologies to Val. This is a question for Nicola. No, that's not allowed. <laughs> but Val can contribute. OK. She can chip in. Um, and unusually for me, it's not too serious a question, unless you make it so. Where does Nicola Sturgeon find the time to read fiction? <laughs> Do you know, I, I, I think the question is rather, would we want politicians that have no interest in the kind of things that the rest of us enjoy enormously? Thank you. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want politicians that don't listen to music and read books and watch the telly occasionally like the rest of us. But, but having said that, you do have a punishing schedule. Yeah. The truth is I don't get nearly as much time as I would like to, to read fiction, but you know, a life without books and a life without reading for me would not be a life worth living. So there you go. That's my take on it. Right. We're, we're almost out of time. I've got time for two very quick questions and you're so quick on the draw there sir that i've got to go to you and uh lady here i've got to be quick because i've been told i've got a deadline to get out of here i'd stay all night but <laughs> i think they'd have to open my thanks bottle. i'm going to break the rules and ask you another question nicola you've dropped a few hints are you thinking of a change in career <laughs> <laughs> that sir is up to you and the electorate <laughs> But if, but if it's anything to do with me, not any time soon. Yeah. There's quite enough Scottish crime writers. <laughs> it's yeah. all the same to you. Fair enough. Uh, right, who did I... Yes, sorry. Hi, Val. Um, I just wanted to say congratulations on your team last night for their win. Yes. 
Um, you do so much research on your books um, to do with all the criminologists and the autopsies and things like that. Have you ever come across a job that you would actually think, I'd really like to do that? And you would, you think, well, maybe I could consider writing sometime and then maybe being in the autopsy room for the rest of the time? No. <laughs> I'm very squeamish. I know you might not believe this, but I really don't like blood. I cut my finger and I'm going like, no, 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 put a plaster on it. No, I, 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 I hugely admire people who, who work in the field of forensic science and, and, and in the field of crime investigation, but I couldn't do that job. Uh, I'm glad I don't have to do that job. I saw enough human misery and pain when I was a journalist not to want to have to do that for real anymore. There's not a lot of upfront blood and gore in your books. It's more psychological and forensic, but is that, is that why? Yeah. Well, yeah, so, I mean, sometimes it's necessary to, to confront violence very directly about you know, the nature of what it is and what it does. And I don't shirk from that. But I think that you, you have to be very careful not to cross the line between just being gratuitously violent mm. for violence's sake. Uh, and that's what I, I, I try to do. I think, you can, I think when it comes to writing about violence, less is often more. Mm. And um, some writers don't always understand that, I think. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, I have had a ball with this wonderful woman this evening. Um, one of the uh, many uh, advantages of Val agreeing to be interviewed by me tonight was that I got to read Splinter the Silence before it was published so I can thoroughly recommend it if you haven't already make sure you get out there and buy a copy as well as Stranded is that out there as well yeah Fine. definitely and the back catalogue is probably all available <laughs> as well look I uh, said at the outset I'm a huge crime fiction fan I think Scotland is blessed with some fantastic crime writers uh, but there's no doubt the queen of them all is the wonderful Val McDermott thank you Val give her a moment. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.